Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley in the philosophy department. I'm Anne-Marie Koistra in the history department. And this week, our guest is Amanda Hamilton uh, from the art department. And we're going to be talking about painting, modern abstract art, and spirituality, meditations on darkness, and the spiritual nature of the artistic. Well, welcome to Amanda Hamilton, um, and she is a, an art professor here at Bethel. And I'm just wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about what you do at Bethel. Yep, I um, teach painting and I teach the foundations color composition and um, ideation class, which is a basic design principles course. Um, I teach all levels of painting and I'm currently teaching a time-based media class, um, performance and video art. So. Um, Really, painting is what I'm trained in, um, but I have made work in my own studio practice over the last 20 years based on ideas more than technical interests. So um, some of my work has been video installation, some has been paper sculpture. Um, I've made a lot of paintings and that's what I'm doing now. Um, so I really am led to work with materials based on the ideas that interest me. Um, right now, the last couple years, I've been really interested in um, abstraction for the first time in my painting life um, and also process. So um, the idea that uh, in the making, the materiality um, is yielding something in collaboration with the artist's intention and the artist's curiosity um, and that abstraction um, is a space to explore or expand on that. Um, but of course, it is also not a space without ideas. So <laughs> the, the things I think about are, um, I've been thinking about darkness. Um, this has been a perceptual question largely for me about how do our eyes see? Um, one of the really interesting facts for me is um, I learned that um, there's a, a phenomenon called dark adaptation. Um, this is like maybe akin to going into a theater out of like a bright middle of the day street and suddenly everything seems very, very dark. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to feel that we can see everything within two or three minutes that our eyes adjust, but actually it's closer to 14 or 15 minutes. Well, and so really? I think, yeah, so the range of things um, that we're able to perceive, it takes much longer um, to really get a full range of visual information, right, of values, light and dark. Um, and so I became really interested in that gap between when we feel like we can see and when we actually can see the most possible. <laughs> and I think there's something there about patience and curiosity and humility. And um, then I think also with some of the social and political things the last few years, that idea of darkness has taken on different metaphoric aspects as well. Um, and so I've really been meditating and making the works on the ideas about um, how, how we can be unafraid mm -hmm. to be in a space that is dark um, and how often that's when we sort of sit with um, our own fear or brokenness or things that allow us to be real deeply human <laughs> and show us our need. <laughs> so Amanda, as you're, as you're thinking about your work, are there things that you're reading 
that help you think through your conceptualization of darkness? And if so, how do those things translate then into the paintbrush and the materials? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and maybe it's conversations more or other images. Right. Um, I think some of the things that I have been thinking about, um, there's a, a French writer named Georges Didi Huberman um, who writes about, um, it, there's a particular essay about fireflies. It has to do actually with fascism in Italy and ecology. <laughs> but, um, but some of the themes of um, points of light, like metaphorically, the idea of fireflies. And, and in this essay, they're a symbol of ecological destruction. They've disappeared. So mm -hmm. in noticing the fireflies disappeared from the landscape, um, it's sort of an occasion to talk about why and what and what conditions preceded that. But I use a lot of raw pigment and I mix a lot of my own paints and I'm very interested in things that are naturally iridescent, like from from the world, like geologically, like flake mica or gold or silver leaf, like things that are optically really, really shiny. Um, I often embed them in the dark paintings that I'm making. The painting, I guess I didn't say, the paintings I've been making the last few years are very, very dark. Um, the pigment and the surface. And so these small like points of light or these naturally occurring iridescences have become important to me. And like thinking about the way that we seek out the light um, and what it might mean for us to see it or lose sight of it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So I'm, I get interested in things that I read that have to do with these kinds of metaphors, but also philosophically thinking about cause and effect and st kind of states of being. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, so I remember that I saw a show of yours here a few years ago, I want to say that mm -hmm. was focusing on darkness. Yeah. And it struck me at that point, about sort of philosophical meditations on darkness and being um, as they connect to kind of the mystical tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered whether mysticism has also been influential as you're thinking about uh, your painting practice and, and darkness. Yeah, I, I would say, um, I think something that interests me is um, the way in which we're able to be present in a space um, like phenomenologically, like, like if my physical person is in front of a painting, in my mind as an art maker, the painting is an opportunity for something to happen, but it's not the only opportunity. So the show that you would have seen at Bethel in I think 2016 or 17, mm -hmm. um, but you can see on my website, so anyone who's listening who's curious can see the last two solo shows were similar in that, um, I really designed the space that the paintings were in. So specific wall color, which was also quite dark um, and very low lighting. And um, I designed furniture particular to the gallery space. So in terms of like proportion, like mathematically, the paintings, the proportion of the paintings, which they're small, um, framed they're 12 by 13 inches. Everything in the gallery is also the same proportion, larger or smaller. So when I've made furniture, like sitting furniture, it's the same proportion as the painting, or maybe the furniture is lifted off the ground the same height as maybe like a step or the bottom of the gallery wall. And my intention in doing this is that 
by minimizing physical and visual stimuli, like if everything is very similar, it somehow feels quiet in the gallery space. Mm -hmm. Or my hope is that for someone who enters that space, that they would feel comfortable to be with themselves. I think we're so much with the world, <laughs> right? We're, we're on our phones. We're thinking about what's next. We're checkboxing our lists. Um, I really, it's been really important to me to make a space that like a great compliment is someone said to me at the last show, I didn't take my phone out once. I just wanted to sit there. And that felt huge to me. Um, the ability to kind of, I almost want to like make the gallery space. So it's a bit of a vacuum. Like it just feels real still it's dark and quiet. Um, and to be like completely honest, it is just as good to me if someone sits on one of the pieces of furniture and just has a quiet moment where they can really like locate themselves and be present as it is if they are excited about looking at the paintings. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of different ways of um, offering something. Um, you know, different people have different curiosities. And if they love the paintings, then I have a lot that I would want to talk about. But, <laughs> but I also want the space to offer something similar that I think the paintings are doing. Mm hmm. Yeah. And again, I think the, the myth, like what you're saying sounds so much like the sort of meditative mystical experience that a lot of the, especially the, the Neoplatonic mystics. So we have our students in Humanities 1 read Julian of Norwich, yeah. um, is this mystical thinker. But a lot of the medieval mystics will, influenced by the idea of an underlying form, sort of kind of influenced by Pythagoras and Plato and then Plotinus, the idea yeah. that there are physical structures that because of their proportionality, they lead to the sort of overarching structure of the universe and then the form of beauty and can lead to this meditative transcendent experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, you just, you sound so, so similar to sort of Plotinus and this sort of leading art as leading to kind of almost a quasi spiritual experience. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And actually, I know, um, since I know you're talking with your classes about modernism, and mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about some of my, especially like as a young person, I was really lucky I got to study in London my junior year in college. And um, that led to, I also have always been like a big art history and aesthetics dork. So that led to a lot of research projects where we were able to actually go see the work in person and, you know, take weekend trips to Vienna and places to go look at the secessionists and, um, you know, go look at the manifestos from this era in person. <laughs> and that was wonderful. Um, but one of the groups that I just fell in love with was the symbolists. And, you know, they're really kind of a mashup of like, impressionism and romanticism and there's some neoclassical stuff it's very literary um and i really i think especially as a young artist who was thinking about um you know you look at the history of art and the way that um especially in western art early early representation is narrative it's storytelling and it's telling um christian stories and it's visually it's dependent visually on us being able to be culturally familiar and kind of read who the characters are and then we see this later also with like mythology and, you know, this kind of recognizable symbols that, mm -hmm. that clue us in to, to the content of the painting. And so like as a young artist, I was very into the symbolists because that's what they do. They're using these kinds of um, textual references to give us hints to the stories, but it felt really 
it was some silly, but it felt really modern. It felt really fresh, right? The, the way they were talking about these stories um, felt kind of enlivened. And I was very, also very into representation. Um, so really curious about how representational artists could talk about this work or talk about these stories in a way that was new feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I was really fortunate. When I was an undergraduate, um, I saw a painting show. I, uh, I went to Biola University. I was in Southern California. And I saw a painting show um, by a painter named Patty Wickman. And um, she's a contemporary painter who investigates um, Christian stories from um, a very, like, contemporary context. So um, recontextualizing um, the story of uh, Mary into like a, you know, 1990s uh, girl's bedroom. Um, So it's, they're kind of jarring. Um, They're deeply researched. Um, They have a lot of symbolism that has both been directly kind of quoted from art history, but also lots of um, innovative ways of alluding to um, historic visual symbols. Um, So, (laughs) anyways, uh, Patty, I fell in love with her work and I was really lucky. She became my mentor um, as I went through undergrad. I interned with her and she has continued to be a really important part of my life. But I would say that's, you know, there are still artists that are working so smartly and beautifully in representation, talking about these stories. Um, And I... I, I don't know, moving to abstraction the last couple years was something that, um, it was something that I didn't expect. Um, it actually came out of like happenstance. I was doing a residency in, at the Vermont Studio Center and FedEx lost my boxes and I didn't have any of my, I know, I had no canvases, no paints, no nothing. Um, and I had made a couple sketches that were these kind of weird abstract little things. And I just thought, oh, well, on a lark, I'm just going to go to the local art store and drop 40 bucks and see what I can do with 40 bucks till FedEx finds my boxes. Um, and during the two or three days that I worked on that, this whole other body of work emerged. And so um, it, it feels, it felt so surprising. Um, it wasn't even necessarily something I feel like I was seeking out. <laughs> um, but then of course, when starting to work with the, the process of materiality, which is so different than using recognizable symbol to, to tell story or to allude to narrative. Um, so how do you, right, how do you um, embody something materially as opposed to depicting it? Like this is a question I think about a lot with representation and abstraction. Um, the paintings I've been making are super small and that's actually a bit of a, Part of that is about um, making something flinty. Like they're not big enough to be really commanding. So they can't rely, like my work can't rely on like, oh, it's big and bold and it has gold in it, you know, which could be very exciting. Um, But because they're so small, trying to figure out how the materials can feel really lively and present. And um, yeah, it's it's a funny thing. I think all probably artists and writers and everyone has have these personal rubrics that you have to you know why you thumbs up or thumbs down something is really personal um but yeah the small scale is about trying to make something small but significant amanda i think that's part of what makes your work so interesting though because small but significant Mm -hmm. and also 
I think because you're exploring the darkness, there are a lot of people who associate darkness with something negative. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really interesting about your work is that it's not as though it's negative or positive, mm-hmm. but I think my experience of your art is that the black, the dark, and the, even the texture of the paintings, it's, it's beautiful. And I think that's maybe a metaphor. I mean, I, I think we don't necessarily think about darkness and beauty maybe enough. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you're sort of turning some traditional ideas on their head that something doesn't have to be large to be significant. Something doesn't have to be bright to be beautiful. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a question, but. Yeah, I think, um, thank you, because that is important to me. And I think that Uh, I think this is also, I think it's psychologically and sort of emotionally and spiritually all in there as a metaphor that like, well, I don't think it's a metaphor. I think it's very real that if we are afraid of the things that we don't understand, or if we're afraid of the dark, um, and, and often culturally, we live in a culture that makes it really easy to be entertained and to move away from the things that are hard to deal with. And I'm very interested in, in, kind of unloading that or trying to make a space where I think a lot about in my life. Um, my students would probably tell you, I talk about this sometimes with them, like, how do we, how do we be unafraid? You know, how do we really um, have the courage to trust that we can be present to all of the things in our life, in the world, and know that like connection and redemption and hope and beauty are real things and not cute things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that I think um, gosh, I feel like I just have to say the Leonard Cohen quote from his song, right? The, the crack is what lets in the light, right? That's this idea of like the brokenness of things is not, um, it is not surprising. It's part of our world. It's part of our experience, but that the light is so much brighter when we can really sit with that and look for the deepness of what is whole as opposed to um, entertaining ourselves away from complexity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm struck by that. So that particular comment, um, Jeanette Winterson in her article uh, or her book, Art Objects, Art Objects, however you pronounce it. Yeah, Um, it's both. (laughs) Yes. Talks about um, the fact that especially in modern society, it's really hard for us to, as you say, focus long enough to actually spend time with art. And so a lot of people's criticisms of abstract art is, I don't understand it. I don't want like, I'm just running through the gallery and then I'm done with it. And she says, people treat art um, like a peep show instead of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that idea that it, it's, if we're thinking about art as entertainment, we're missing something and that there needs to be a relationship and engagement that happens. Um, and that's going to be messier than. Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely agree. This is something because I'm teaching, um, video art right now, that's something we talk about in that class is, you know, when we think video and we think Netflix and chill, that literally is the posture of like relaxing back on the couch and checking out, right? Uh-huh. Like I am ready to be entertained. I am off, yeah. off the clock. Um, and that that kind of like actual physical posture of kind of like slouching back and relaxing is like the opposite of what we want to bring to like engaging artworks, whether it's video or painting or a great book or something, right? That, that that kind of sitting forward, like the physical posture of being ready to watch, listen, the curiosity, that attitude is going to yield something totally different 
for anyone who brings it to a work of art than that kind of slouching back, like, I'd like to be entertained, and then being disappointed that they're not. And it's like, well, you misunderstood the opportunity presented to you. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so I... There's a great cartoon, Ad Reinhardt, uh, who is a mid-century painter who made a lot of very dark paintings. His have really dark uh, color chroma, so reds, blues, yellows that are so dark, um, you almost can't perceive them. Um, he also drew comics, and one of the comics I love that he drew at the time was an abstract painting um, basically it's a man in a gallery who's laughing at a painting and saying, ha ha ha, what does this mean? And in the next scene, the painting is literally like kind of poking out with this painting arm at him and saying, what do you mean, sir? You know? So I think it's like an interesting question of like abstraction in some ways does require us to mirror or consider or like ourselves show up in a way that, um, you know, I, it's a good question. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, and I think too, one of the, I mean, I'm no art historian, obviously, but um, one of the things that was important for me to talk about with my students is that the abstract artists that we looked at, they didn't do the abstract art because they couldn't do representational art. Like this was a deliberate choice. And they were going for something different. They were trying to do something different. They were trying to think through something different. And I do think a lot of people that just casually go to an art gallery don't necessarily appreciate that they are, they are meaning to do what they're doing here. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I mean, the other thing is in most galleries or museums, if you're seeing the work publicly shown, it's because someone within the discipline found it to be interesting and intentional enough that it made it through those hoops, right? So, so a, a good place to start, I think, is assuming intentionality on the part of the artist. And then instead of assuming like this doesn't mean anything, saying, well, if they meant to do this, why did they mean to do this? What does it mean that they did this, right? So I often tell my students with unfamiliar work that like kindergarten questions, like what is it? It's blue, it's big it's small, it's red, you know, these kinds of very simple observations can lead us through to like, you know, what is it? Why is it? Um, what, is, what size is it in relation to my body? How optically does it change when I walk up to it versus when I'm far away from it? You know, like, I think there's just a lot of really simple questions that could open up some curiosity space. Um, and then often I think a lot of work, for me at least, a lot of mid-century work and like abstraction, there's such a surface quality, whether it's the texture of the paint or, or I guess what I want to say is it's something you want to see in person if you can. Mm -hmm. um, the scale of these works are often so much larger than our bodies and we inherently have a really different experience with something small than with something big. Mm -hmm. um, I think we really miss so much when we only look at art on screens or in books because it's all the same size mm -hmm. and you know it's it's all going to be an inch or two or 10 inches you know it's it's tiny little reproductions um and when you get to see something in person um or at the very least like i love to at least see a painting with a human in a nearby photo you know in the photo to see scale but yeah. um so much of it is the presence of the object i think um and how you engage with it so it really it's also hard, I think, for people to talk about uh, abstraction or to talk about um, non-objective works or minimalism when they, when they aren't standing in front of it, because it's kind of conjecture. 
Amanda, I'm going to ask you another question. Um, so some of my students are going to go to the MIA this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just wondering, I know that, you know, you kind of got your wheels in Southern California, but you've been living in Minneapolis for ages. Mm -hmm. Is there a painting at the MIA that you would say, I, you, can't, you can't miss this one if you're going to take the trouble to go? Oh, man. I know. That's There's not a fair so question. There's so many. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, um, a sort of quirky personal favorite. Okay. Um, in one of the, well, so I mean, their, their impressionist, uh, expressionist collection is quite nice. Um, the, am I, or Mia, right? They want us to call it Mia now. Yeah, I'm so getting used to that. Um, old lady. <laughs> Mia is, um, you know, it's I, just for your students too. It's like, it's a knockout museum. I mean, it really has the breadth and quality of a small collection that you would see in a, in, you know, a, a much bigger city and, I've just been blown away when I moved here. I was knocked <laughs> off my socks just to see the, what they have in the collection. Um, at Mia, Gallery 351 is a knockout gallery. Um, yep. I believe that it has, I know that it has some early Mondrian studies. So, um, Henry, back to your point that artists are skillful, yep. regardless of what they choose to paint. Um, yep. Beautiful floral studies, yes. small paintings, yep. like gladioli and irises. Yep. Um, also, a painting to the right of a doorway, a really small painting, I think it's called Mother, and it's a door cracked with golden light, and mm. the artist's mother mm. entering the room, and it is so moving. I find it to be so beautiful. It's a tiny little painting on cardboard. Mm. Um, but I think also in that same room are some Bonard paintings that have amazing, chunky, shimmery paint. Mm -hmm. um, I just really love that room. It's a great room. Yeah, so there. So this is one of the rooms that we're going to go on Sunday. And I have in my notes that there is an early Mondrian and an early Kandinsky. Yeah. And I like those too because I think the Mondrian is the one where there's sort of the gray background and the flower is maybe the sort of orangey, red, reddish. That orange red. Yep. Oh, man, that's beautiful. a gorgeous painting. I it's beautiful. And the, the, the sections of the flower are on this like tenuous little brittle kind of paint mm -hmm. line that's so elegant. It's a wonderful painting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. We always like to end our podcast by asking our guests, what's on your nightstand? Since this is bookish at Bethel, just what are you reading for fun right now? Or not for fun, for yeah. work. What are you reading right now? Um, there's two things I'm reading right now. Um, I am in the habit of returning to certain books every five or six years of my life. So I am revisiting um, Brothers Karamazov right now for fun. Um, and I also really love audiobooks. So I have a, a founder reader that I love for Brothers Karamazov and also, um, oh, uh, Anna Karenina is the other one. I often return to that. Um, and also, oh, another good one for our moment is Trollope's The Way We Live Now. Boy, that book feels really of the moment. Wow. Um, and if you have a lot of time on your hands, like if you're a runner or you do a lot of menial tasks where you want entertainment, that audiobook is like 36 hours long. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but those are fun ones. Um, but then actually, I'm also reading something that, that still relates to my art practice. Um, in 2000, ooh, I want to say 13-ish, um, I did a project that related to Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping. Um, and at the time, I, um, well, as I mentioned, I love audiobooks. And 
after reading the book a few times in paperback format, I wanted the audiobook, but I found the reader to be um, so clinical, um, felt like they were just reading a list. And Marilyn Robinson's language is so careful and beautiful. Um, I decided that just for my own benefit, I would record the audiobook myself. So um, I guess about 10 years ago, I started recording this and um, never finished the last few chapters. So actually just last night, I was picking that project up and I'm going to finish reading the book <laughs> after all this time. So um, I'm also reading Housekeeping. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, Carrie, what's on your nightstand? So as always, I was um, talking to my students today, actually, as we were discussing Elliot, that James Joyce's Ulysses is still on my nightstand as I make it, make it through that long modernist piece um, as my pandemic read. And then I have also started because I realized I, and I just finished hiking with Nietzsche and white fragility. So I had been kind of reading these either heavy theoretical or heavy social justice um, texts. So I picked up and just started reading um, Terry Pratchett's Jingo and Terry Pratchett is a British satire writer. Um, and this is about really people who want to make war and will use any excuse to, to go to war to trump up nationalism. So also it's hilarious and timely. Fantastic. <laughs> what about you, Anne-Marie? I am still immersed in this massive biography called The Sisters, The Saga of the Mitford Family. Yeah, so there are six sisters, and I'm now in the part where the communist sister and the fascist sister are in Germany, and the fascist sister is um, having a good relationship with Hitler, and another sister is getting married in another Nazi high ups house because they have those kinds of connections and i have no idea what's going to happen next with these ladies but boy howdy very interesting but yeah good um, i should i should also mention by the way amanda that um dan ritchie a few weeks ago when he was on was also reading anna karenina so ah. a little russian novel something in the air mm -hmm. in the air <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. I love Brothers Karamazov, and I feel like in the past I've read it and thought, oh, it's love stories. And then other times I've read it and thought, oh, it's about ethics and difficult moral choices. And now I'm reading it and I'm going, wow, uh, the church and power and government, such interesting threads there. I mean, it just feels like every time you read it, it kind of reflects these grand themes. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm interested in the way that different facets sort of come out in different readings. That's yeah. Fabulous. Well, You've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. <laughs>